Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Sienna. And this is Nobel Prize Losers, the people that science forgot. So this week we're going to talk about Ernest Everett Just, a black embryologist. I'm sure this will be covered, but I have literally no idea what an embryologist is. From the word, I assume an embryologist studies embryos. But I couldn't tell you what that means in a practical scientific sense to save my goddamn life. Yeah. Um, well, well, we'll get into that. Ernest Everett Just was born in Charleston, South Carolina on the 14th of August in 1883. His father died when he was four years old and soon after his dad's death, his family moved to James Island, which is an island off the coast of South Carolina. There, he attended a small school that was founded and run by his mother, Mary Matthew Just. At age 12, 12, um, he went off to attend Colored Normal Industrial Agricultural and Mechanics College at Orangeburg, which is, now has the much nicer name. Of South Carolina State College. Yeah, those were a lot of words, my dude. There's a lot of words. <laughs> um, so he graduated from Colored Normal Industrial Agricultural and Mechanics College at Orangeburg. In 1899, at the age of 15, with a teaching license. Wait, hang on. Didn't you say he was born in 83? In August. Um, so I assume he graduated probably in Oh, May like a June. couple months earlier. Okay. Yeah, so he's 15 years old when he graduates with a teaching license. Um, and he, so with that, he could teach at any black school in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, however, he wasn't really interested in teaching at this time. So he God started same. to, <laughs> he's, sorry, teachers. No, it's not like it's a bad job. It's just a bad job for me. He... Um, would pick up odd jobs as he traveled north until he eventually enrolled at the Kimball Union Academy in Meriden, New Hampshire. He graduated there after after only three years, um, in which time his mother had died. Wait, what degree was that? I honestly, I'm not sure. Um, The things that I see just said, a classical course of study. Okay, just because only three years seems like an odd thing to say depending what degree it was. I mean, it was like like, like a bachelor's. Okay, it was a bachelor's. So a yes. second bachelor's. Yes. Okay. And he would go on to attend Dartmouth College for another bachelor's. I guess. <laughs> so, so, well, I mean, he's getting his third degree at he enrolls at the age of 17. Yeah, I guess, you know what, if you're only 17, go ahead. If you're only 17, might as well. Um, and at Dartmouth, he studied biology, literature, history, and classics. So he triple majored. Quadruple. Biology, biology, history, literature, and classics. Oh, is literature and classics not like a... Yeah, I, I listed it as biology, literature, history, and classics. Gotcha. I mean, because... You could have Classic, yeah. Also, because classics is kind of history and literature kind of together. And languages a little bit. 
But, like, biology is just an entirely different thing. Yep. So he graduated from Dartmouth in 1907. He was the valedictorian and the only student of the year to be awarded magna cum laude. Boy, is that different now. We don't need to go into a whole treatise about how Latin honors and grades and everything have totally changed, but they have, and it's wild. Indeed. So that same year, he joined the faculty at the predominantly black Howard University Mm -hmm. as an English professor. Mm -hmm. Then um, he would take over the biology department in 1910, where he would teach physiology. And soon after, he beca- he helped to create and become the head of the new zoology department. And he would, at that point, give up teaching English entirely and became solely a zoology professor. Okay, quickie question. What is the distinction here between biology and zoology? Is it plant sciences versus zoology? Or am I confused about something? Because I thought zoology was sort of a subcategory of biology yes i mean it is but it's uh just creating an entire new department around it of which he was the head but there was still a biology department that he was no longer part of he was no longer part of the english department right but what happened to the biology department the biology department still existed because didn't you say he was heading the biology department So he just dipped on heading the biology department to head the zoology department. Yes. Okay. In 1909, through a contact from Dartmouth, he reached out to Frank Lilly, who is a renowned embryologist and director of the Marine Biology Laboratory, or the MBL, Mm -hmm. at Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Lily began directing Just in research at Woods Hole and had him start taking classes at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. He became a research assistant at the MBL while still working full-time as a professor at Howard and also taking PhD courses at UChicago. Sure, yeah, got it. Um, (laughs) So in 1915, he won the N. AACP's first ever Spingarn medal, uh, which mm-hmm. was for outstanding achievement by a black American. In any field. Yes. Spicy. And then in 1916, he was awarded his PhD in experimental embryology from UChicago, which made him one of the, according to one thing I read, made him one of the first black Americans to receive a PhD from a a major university. Okay. Um, have we covered yet what an embryologist does? Like, do you know, for example, what his dissertation was in or something like that? I, I was sort of going to, to do a little more overview and then get into the specifics of his research. Okay. So after his PhD, he continued to work at Howard full-time and at Woods Hole in the summer as an independent researcher. In his research, he focused on um, marine invertebrate eggs, and he was looking to show sort of the importance mm-hmm. of the egg's surface in the fertilization process. Okay, so, his- so is this... See, I know a little bit about fish sex. So is this, like, the thing 
Because ladyfish, like, eject their eggs into the water, and then manfish eject their sperm into the water. So is it about, like, the permeability of the egg? Yes, a little bit. Um, Although he wouldn't have, he was looking at um, a, a species of sand dollar, not fish. Fish are vertebrates. Wait, wait, hang on. Hang on. Because you've just blown up my entire world. Sand dollars are creatures? Yes, sand dollars are alive. I thought sand dollars were just like... I don't know, I kind of thought they were like shells. Like, maybe something lived inside them once to make the shape. But I didn't think they were like dead animals. People like take them home and put them on their mantles. Okay, well that's gonna bother me the, for a the while. The creature that, that lives is called the sand dollar. Yeah, that's gonna bother me. Um, so in his, in his first ever paper, which he published in 1912, the relation of the first cleavage plane to the entrance point of the sperm, um, he showed, uh... I'm sorry, I didn't get any of that. Apparently, live sand dollars have little creepy crawly spines that they use to crawl along the sand. Um... So yeah, it's not a shell. It is literally the dead, the dead creature. Okay. Um. um I'm sorry. Also, I just really needed to know about that really quickly. He also worked with worms. If that's better for your brain. No, no. I'm fine now that I know about it. But I am definitely never picking up a sand dollar again. To be fair, I have never picked up a sand dollar in my entire life. I just know that people do it. And I know that I find them pretty. But damn, son. Put a corpse on a necklace? Yeah. So yeah, the the white sand dollars are the skeletons of the sand dollars. And they are called tests. Yeah, okay, okay. Proceed, I'm sorry. So in 1912, he published his first paper called The Relation of the First Cleavage Plane to the Entrance Point of the Sperm. And Mm -hmm. as the title suggests, it was about how the eggs of marine worms would cleave in different planes depending on the sperm's point of entry. And this would help to prove um, his hypothesis that the egg's surface was an important factor because if you could show that the sperm was equally likely to enter the egg at any point on its surface, mm-hmm. and then that the direction of cleavage depended on that arbitrary point of entry, um, you could show that there was not a predetermined cleavage plane. Okay, so ba- basically he was showing... Well, isn't that showing kind of the opposite, that the surface is not important so much as the entry point is important? But that is the entry point on the surface right but isn't if that makes sense. but isn't the idea that it's not determined by the surface it's determined by the sperm or am i missing something um it's it's sort of determined by this by the surface's reaction to the sperm if oh, that makes okay. sense. i get you i get you at this time he met and befriended fellow embryologist jacques loeb who was working at the rockefeller institute for medical research uh spoiler alert this friendship does not last. Uh-oh. Does he steal all his stuff? No. Just most of it? Not ex- not exactly. Just's research um, showed basically how fertilization occurred. 
he was able to show when a mommy sand dollar and a daddy sand dollar love each other very much he was able to show that the egg pulled in the sperm rather than the commonly held uh, belief that the sperm bored its way into the egg and he also wait what is that true for everything or just for sand dollars because I was taught, like, in biology class, that the sperm, like, drills a hole in the egg. And then after the sperm drills a hole, the eggs, like, solidifies so that more sperm can't drill a hole in it. Well, that's, uh, he also proved that, uh, sort of, that second part. Um, which is he documented a wave of instability that, um, moved the sperm's entry point to the opposite side of the egg and was associated with the blocking of penetrability uh, by other sperm. Gotcha. So, wait, wait, so he proved one of the things I learned in biology class a lie, but he proved the other thing I learned in biology class a true, a truth, to be true. Yep, yep. Okay. Um, in 1920, while still teaching, he received a 10-year research fellowship. While while doing this fellowship, he would sort of trash aggressively on the work of his former friend, Jacques Loeb. Oh. So. Do we uh, know what happened there? Yes. Okay. Um, Loeb had done a study to show that egg development could be initiated by exposing the egg to um, butric acid, um, and that it would, like, break down the egg cortex and start development. Um, Wait, just sh- I thought you meant that, like, you could make a fish make more eggs, but you mean you could make the egg grow? Yep. Okay. Just showed that putting eggs in butric acid actually was a bad idea. <laughs> actually slowed um, cytolysis rather than speed it up. Wait, so so Jacques' research didn't show anything. Yeah. So basically, um, just uh, took his research and proved that the cytolytic effect that uh, Loeb was showing was just the effect of overexposure to acid on the eggs and nothing more. So, you know, that's already, like, he, he's like, your, your work is wrong. But he went further in dismissing this artificial parthenogenesis by just straight up attacking the way Loeb kept records and saying that it, his experiments were poor because he failed to establish experimental conditions that largely mirrored the experimental organism's natural conditions. So he was like, hey, your work is wrong and also you're bad at doing science. But that's a really common critique that happens in science, though, like the the issue of in situ versus um in vitro studies but because if we're studying something in a lab we can control what's happening way way better but then with that control we're having um problems with how valid that is to what happens in the real world but if we study something in the real world we have a lot of problems about how valid it is in terms of 
if the variable we're interested in is what's actually making a change or if there's some variable that we are not controlling for. Um, so, like, Ernest is being a little harsh. Yeah, he's... So, yeah, so so Loeb's experiments were not good, but Ernest kind of straight up just shat on them. <laughs> So, at this point, the friendship that they had had uh, very quickly vanished. Mm -hmm. And Loeb went on to uh, use his position at the Rockefeller Institute to provide negative evaluations of Just to the Institute as well as the Carnegie Foundation. Um, And basically... These these bad reviews would go on mm-hmm. to prevent Just from getting most of the grants he applied for. Wait, so basically he... His research was criticized, so he blacklisted our buddy Ernest. Yes. Okay. I mean, that's pretty standard for uh, turn-of-the-century science, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, he was like... That's rough. He said, screw you, I'm going to try and make it so you never get a grant again. And did he never get a grant again? Not quite. Um, Okay. However, he sort of... He did begin to feel fatigued with the limitations of his career, largely due to racism um, at the lab, he at, at the mm. MBL, and just in America in general. So, starting in 1929, he made several research trips to Europe. Okay. And eventually, he would move there entirely. However, that did not last very long. Because in in 1939... Europe went to war? uh, He was put in a Nazi prison camp. Ah, yes. Um. Which, with the help of his German wife, uh, with the help mm-hmm. of her father, he was able to escape, and he fled France and returned to the U.S. He, wait, he fled to France? He fled from France. He was in a prison camp in France. But his wife was German. Was he living in France, or was he living in Germany? Um, it is unclear... Um, okay. Because he did re- he he would work in Berlin, Naples, and Paris. He he worked across. That's the life, man. Yeah, he would work across Germany, France, and Italy. Um. So, in nineteen forty, he returned to, to the U.S. and he returned to Howard University because it was one of the only institutions at the time that would hire a black scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, his attempt to restart his career in the U.S. was short-lived, however, because he died of pancreatic cancer in October of 1941. Oh. Of 19? 1941. What? Oh, he was born in the late 1800s. I was like, hang on! He was born in 1883, and he lived yeah. to 1941. Yeah, that's not that old, man. No. Okay. 
So he was um about 58 when he died. Mm-hmm. His his work was um, largely forgotten to literature. What he had done was very important, and it um, it affected the future of embryology and people's understanding of how fertilization occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, but his name wasn't really known for that until nineteen eighty three, on the hundredth anniversary of his birth that a MIT historian, Kenneth Manning, published a biography on him. Which helped, nice. Which helped renew interest and has spread a lot of information about who Ernest was and all of the really cool work he did. And uh, today, Dartmouth offers the EE Just program in his name, which is... Uh, working to increase the number of underrepresented minorities in STEM fields at Dartmouth. Where he got, like, four degrees. Where he got a bunch of degrees as one. (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. Alrighty, then. So that's, that's Ernest Everett Just. That's a good name, can I also say. Ernest Everett Just, yeah. It's got a it's got a gravitas to it. Alrighty. That's all for us. Yeah. Um you can follow us on Twitter at Nobel Losers or Instagram at Nobel Prize Losers. Um and please rate and review. It really helps small podcasts. And subscribe. Rate, review, and subscribe. It really (laughs) helps small podcasts. And, of course, tell your friends if you enjoy. And, as always, we leave you with the words of Marie Curie. Now is the time to understand more. So that we may fear less.